Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 tonight, we continue our series entitled The King Conflict. Excited about next week as Brother Jeremy Ogden will be preaching for us in the Wednesday night service, launching our Tethered Together uh, youth camp. Excited about that. Uh, but uh, tonight, let's come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, uh, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were Saul and Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Now, verse number 2, we see two unique firsts in the history of the nation of Israel. The first uh, thing that we see is that this is the first time Israel appoints for themselves a sort of professional army. These men are designated soldiers. That's what they are. They're not part-time farmers, part-time warriors. They are full-time soldiers ready to be called up in a moment's time to defend the nation and service for their king, for their country, and for their God. And this is the first appointment because heretofore, Israel has acted more as a militia. Everybody had their different roles and things to work in, but when it came time to fight, that's when they fought. But this is the first appointed professional army in Israel's history. And then we go to, this is the first mention of the son of Saul, Jonathan by name. Now Jonathan will become somewhat of a central character as we continue our study. He'll die, I believe it's in chapter number 30, but in that time, he becomes a really remarkable character in the Bible. In fact, he's a man that we could all esteem to be like. He's a courageous man. He's a loyal man. He's a humble man. He's a man who loved the Lord. This is how humble he was, and this is how gracious he was. Somehow, he was able to navigate the pitfalls of being the best friend of his dad's mortal enemy. And in all of the things that I have seen of his life, he was able to honor and respect his father and still love and appreciate and serve his friend. You tell me if that would not be a a perilous situation... Jonathan was a godly man. He was a man of character. He was a warrior. And we'll see that in verse number 3 as well as in the next chapter. He'll be a great part of our study. And so the army now, led by King Saul, is 3,000 in total. 2,000 served directly under him in one battalion. And 1,000 serve under his son Jonathan in another battalion. Verse number 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. Now, uh, archaeology has proven that Geba had been a Philistinian stronghold. And, and certainly, as Jonathan overthrows them, this set them in an uproar. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that, Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines, and that and, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Now to clarify, verse number four says the people were had in abomination with the Philistines. And if you read that, uh, given Israel's history, you might be tempted to think that they were intermarried. That's kind of the obvious Uh, way that you could take that is they were in abomination, meaning uh, unequally yoked. They were married. But that's not what this is saying here. The abomination here 
is that they defied Philistinian oppression. So once the Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines, especially in their stronghold, the Philistines heard of it and said, How dare these lowly Israelites defy us and our rule? In fact, they were fine with the Israelites' presence as long as they weren't in, uh, in, in, in conflict with one another. They were fine as long as they were farming their fields. But the very moment that they said, no, we will not serve you. And what Jonathan does here is essentially declares independence from Philistinian rule. It's at that point they became loathsome to them. In fact, what's unique is the word here in verse number 4, abomination, in Hebrew, it literally means to have a bad smell. (laughs) The Philistines said, the actions you've done, the thing you've done stinks. We don't like it. It's an abomination to us that you would defy our rule. One commentator had this to say about this particular subject. As long as the Israelites stayed in their weak, defeated place, the Philistines thought they were great guys. As soon as the Israelites showed boldness and courage against the Lord's enemies, the Philistines considered the Israelites an abomination. And that is much the way it is in the Christian life. The very moment you decide to take a stand for the Lord, that's when the world has a problem with you. It's okay if you have your Jesus and He affects you in your life, but don't you dare try to tell me about Him. Don't you dare try to act as if you and your Bible and your God can in any way call what I do or how I live a sinful way. Don't you dare stand up for the Lord. And it's when we take stands for God that we make enemies of the devil. And that's what's happened here. Verse number 5. And the Philistines gathered themselves together... To fight with Israel. Now listen, notice the numbers here. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Haven. So just a quick uh, reminder of the numbers at play here. There's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 soldiers mounted on horseback, and footmen as many as can be counted. The, the writer here is just saying, you know, it's such an innumerable host of people, I couldn't even count them if I tried. So you have a whole lot of people versus, does anybody remember how much is in the Israelite army? 3,000. What do you think the odds are? Not good. It gets worse as we get to the end of the chapter and you find out even those 3,000 soldiers... Guess how many swords there are in the whole nation? Two. 3,000 soldiers, two swords. One held by Saul, one held by Jonathan. So it's getting more absurd the idea that Israel could in any way overthrow the Philistines. Verse number 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, it's understandable that they're distressed, wouldn't you say? I would say that it makes a lot of sense, just logically speaking. I mean, we're outside of the realm of faith here. It makes a lot of sense that there would be some fear within the people's hearts. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. If you ask me, that's not all that extreme. 
They find any boulder big enough to get under, and that's where they go. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, verse 7, as I mentioned, I think it's justifiable that they're trembling. But may we remember the very reason they appointed a king in the first place. What was the reason they appointed a king? That he may fight our battles for us. Here's the problem. Their self-appointed solution worked the first time. And by the way, I don't think it works without God's blessing. I don't think it works without God empowering King Saul and, and, and God doing a great work through the people. However, their solution worked in that particular scenario, in that particular time. The idea that they had was, this will fix all of our problems. The reality was, the very next problem they faced, the king wasn't going to be up to the task. And that's the way our solutions work. Our solutions that we can come up with based on our experience and wisdom and maybe even counsel and what we know from the Bible, the ways that we can fix our problems usually work once in a while. The ways that God fixes our problems work all the time. And you say, how does God fix our problems? And how can I make sure that I'm doing it God's way? Uh, you learned these verses in, 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 in Sunday school class when you were growing up, so I'm not telling you anything new here. It's just that we need to be reminded so that we might apply it as adults and not just simple children. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. You know what people that are trying to lean unto their own understanding do? They appoint kings. They fix their problem the way that makes sense, based upon what all the world is, else is doing. We want, a, we want a king like everybody else so that he can fight our battles. They fix their problem by their self. So lean not unto thine own understanding. Notice, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. How many ways should we acknowledge him? Always. You know why? Because it always works. Trusting the Lord and patiently waiting for his deliverance works Always. So if we will acknowledge Him in all our ways, it will always work. But here we find the breakdown in the people's solution. They all come trembling. They're following their king, but that doesn't give them confidence. That hasn't removed the certainty of their enemy. That hasn't removed the certainty of their fear. The king didn't fix the problem at all. And guess what? God told them it wouldn't. Because God said He would still bless them as long as the king did what He wanted Him to do. As long as the king would honor Him, it was always God that would fix the people's problems. Verse number 8. And He tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. That's found in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. The first time when Samuel gives him instructions on how to do this. Samuel appoints seven days that Saul would have to wait before, he before Samuel shows up and sacrifices. The Bible says, But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Here's a question I would like to ask you. And I want you to put on your... In, in children's church we say, Put on your thinking caps. Here's what to, Think about this. Why did, why did Samuel wait? Why did he take longer than his self-appointed time? 
I mean, it makes no sense, really, when you think about it. Is there a more pressing national issue than the innumerable host ready to fight them? Do you think that Samuel was over under the boulders preaching to those that were fearful? Trust in the Lord. You know, do you think that's what's happening? No, no. Maybe, just maybe, this was Saul's Abraham moment. Say, what do you mean by that? I mean, Abraham was tempted by the Lord. And we understand what that means. He wasn't tempted to sin, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But God tested Abraham's faith. What if this is the moment where God tests Saul's faith? Read verse 13 with me. We'll skip down just a little bit. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Could it be that this was the moment when Abraham was to put the knife into his own son's heart and God says, Now I know that you fear me. Could it be that some of the things that arise in our life, the enemies that gather against us, the uh, opposition that we face in the Christian life, some of the adversity that comes along, medical conditions we don't understand, financial struggles that hit us in the face while nobody expects them, could it be that these come and God is saying, I wonder how much you fear me. Saul shows precisely how much he fears the commandment of the Lord by totally disregarding it. Saul's not worried about what God has to say about it. Saul's more concerned about procedures than he is actually obeying God. I wonder if maybe some people tonight aren't going through their Abraham moment. You're you're, you're struggling. I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons to struggle. You can struggle for an innumerable reasons. I don't even want to mention any of them because I'm afraid if I started mentioning them, some, some, well, preacher's talking right to me tonight. No, no, no. You might be in an Abraham moment. You sit there and say, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know why it's taking so long. I don't know why it's so hard. I don't understand. And I wonder if God's saying, do you fear me? Do you fear me? Saul proved exactly how much he feared the Lord by disregarding the commandments of God. Samuel had no reason to tarry, but he tarried. Why? Because maybe this was, Abraham, this was Saul's Abraham moment. Verse number 9. And, uh, or verse number 8. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering... Uh, 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 Offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. These may be the most infamous words of Saul's reign. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. You know, Samuel, I just had to do it. I just felt as if it was important. Samuel, it it meant a lot to the people. It meant a lot to me. 
I, I just knew that I needed to do something. It was within my power to do it, so I did it. The problem is, his feelings, his desires, what encouraged the people, whatever his justification was, does not supersede God's command. We're raising a generation of Christians today that think the way that they feel is somehow ultimately more important than what God's Word clearly says. And they'll search to the 27th page of the Google search to find a theologian that agrees with their viewpoint so that they can justify what they want to do. It's utter foolishness for us to act as if there are some things that we, well, we just have to do them. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. No, that's not the way a Christian ought to live their life. And the Christian that does live their life that way, I can tell you, is headed for certain defeat and destruction. That's what happens to Saul. Verse number 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Now, as always, you go to the first mention of something so that it might understand what it means. And oftentimes you'll hear a preacher refer to a man after God's own heart. What does this phrase mean within its context? Within its context, a man after God's own heart is somebody who will do what Saul was unwilling to do. What was Saul unwilling to do? Obey God's Word. To do the commandment of the Lord. That is, by understanding what Samuel meant to Saul, that is the man that God appointed in David. A man who loved God's Word. A man who was willing to do God's Word. Was he a perfect man? Far from it. Only been one of them ever and David wasn't him. And I, I, this may surprise you. Neither are you. I know that catches you off guard tonight. We have an altar call here in a little bit. You can get that right. But David's not a perfect man, but he was a man that loved God's Word. He was a man that craved God's Word. He was a man who uh, applied himself to God's Word and allowed God's Word to be binding upon his actions. So what is a man after God's own heart? A man that comes to God and says, God, if your commandments say it, I'll do it. If your words say it, I'll do it. Lord, I want to, like the song said tonight, I want, I'll be willing to do it. If that's what you want for me. Whatever it takes for my will to break, Lord, that's what I'll be willing to do. And that's the kind of man that David will be. That's the kind of man that Saul was not. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and got him out up from Gilgal, unto Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. Now let's just do a little math here, okay? We'll go back to the idea. of. So, you remember how many chariots there are? How many of you remember? 30,000, okay? Can we say that together? 30,000 chariots. There's 6,000 men on horseback, so there's, say that with me, 6,000 horseback riding men, okay? Now, we don't even know how many people are on foot, the foot soldiers, but it's an innumerable host, so we understand that tonight. How many did the army of Israel start out with? 
3,000. Very good. How many do they have now? 600. We're going the wrong direction. Where's everybody else? Verse 6 told us they're hiding under rocks. They're in caves. They are in self-preservation mode. You know, you have the flight, fight, and freeze. You had some that took flight. And that's... Saul's left now with 600 men. Things are getting more dire and desperate. Verse 16. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people that were present with him, abode in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Verse number 17. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines... In three companies. One company turned unto the way that leadeth to Ophrah, uh, unto the land of Shual. Just before we get too far, spoilers is kind of a word that we uh, don't use much in today's language. The obviously implications is somebody who's sent to spoil. The actual uh, Hebrew word means to destroy. And in the 1828 Noah Webster's dictionary, it means. Uh, let me see. It means a plunderer, a pillager, a robber, or one that corrupts. You say, why does it matter what Noah Webster has to say? Just that the English language was more, uh, uh, more similar in 1828 than it is in 2020 to the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. That's why we refer to that. So Noah Webster says it's a pillager. It's a destroyer. It's somebody that sets, sent out to do nothing but plunder. Okay, that helps us understand what these men were. They were nothing but soldiers to destroy. And verse number 18, another company turned the way to Bethor, uh, Bethhoron, and another company turned to the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter, and his axe, and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks, and for the coulters, and for the forks, and for the axes, and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. Again, we referred to this earlier. How many swords? Two. So... It sounds pretty desperate that there are 600 people. You know what sounds worse? That out of those 600 people, only two of them have weapons. This is pretty desperate stuff. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. And just quickly, so we understand kind of what's going on. In verse number 19, it makes indication that there's no blacksmith within the nation of Israel. The reason for that is the Philistines are a, a group of people from southern Greece, and they're seafaring people. These are voyagers that have landed in the land of Canaan, and they have colonized. And their colonization brought with them Grecian technologies, obviously the superpower of the day. They're far more advanced than the children of Israel. And so it is archaeologically proven that the Philistian people they actually introduced metallurgy to the land of Canaan. And so when uh, the nation of Israel needed something, guess where they went to go get it? They went to the Philistines. You say, why did they help each other? Why, why would they sell something to the Israelites? Well, presumably because they had money. 
They had something of value and they'd trade and they'd barter and they would sell. Uh, that's a great thing about capitalism. It's worked all throughout history, really, when you think about it. Uh, but remember I said earlier, it wasn't until uh, Israel stood up for themselves, it wasn't until Jonathan smote a garrison of the Philistines that uh, the Israelites became an abomination. Heretofore, they'd been living peacefully together. The problem was the Philistines thought that they were in, in power over the Israelites. And now Jonathan stood up against them and now they got real problems. When the Israelites would go to the Philistines... They would buy these axes, pitchforks, plowshares, hoes, and things to work in the garden with. That's what every single one of these are. Coulters and all these things. They are not weapons of warfare. They are farm implements. They are gardening tools. They are things to cut down timber to build things with. They are not designed for warfare. And so imagine an Israelite going to the land of, uh, to the people of Philistia and he says, we need a sharp axe. And so they get them an axe. Now, if you were doing business and you were part of the Philistines, would you sell them the best axe you have? Probably not. And especially if they don't have a way of really sharpening that and they have to keep coming back to the Philistines for sharpening, it is a good business practice, a little bit deceptive, but a good pr business practice to send them off with an almost sharp axe. You say, why is that? Because that means they have to come back sooner. <laughs> that means they have to sharpen their axe more. This is a horrible setup, but the setup is this way. I don't necessarily think because of the negligence of the nation of Israel. It's just this way because one civilization is far more technologically and militarily advanced, more so than the Hebrews are, than the Israelites are. And so you have this, this situation where even the weapons they have are a bunch of pitchforks and pickaxes. Can you imagine... The, the standoff between these two armies. It's actually comical when you think about it. Here's Saul and Jonathan leading the charge. They've got two swords. Everybody else has. Looks like they're coming to get the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. You know, they've got pitchforks and all these things. It's hilarious. But that is the case here in the chapter. We get into the next chapter. We'll see Jonathan valiantly fight really by himself, do a great thing, but we'll stay in our chapter for this week. I want to mention a few things to you, and I want to go back to verse 11 and 12 because I read through them. I didn't stop, but verse 11 and 12 is where we find our kind of sermon applications for this week. Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed... And that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And I just have to take my word for it. During the time of my ministry, I have seen so many Christians make unforced errors. Meaning, there's pressures working from outside that are forcing them to make decisions that eventually they end up regretting. In tennis, they actually have a designation between forced errors and unforced errors, and that is the distinction. See, a mishit ball uh, would be an unforced error. 
but a forced error would be one that the opponent caused them to have a difficult return. That's a forced error. And I've seen over my ministry experience, so many Christians make bad decisions and they're forced by these outward pressures or they, they perceive that they're being forced. Like King Saul, he says, I forced myself, therefore, I just had to do it. So I want to talk to you tonight quickly about the outward pressures that can force us into unspiritual decisions. The forced error is the result of these outward pressures. And the first pressure that I see in Saul's life and so many Christians' life is this. Times of transition can cause us to make forced errors. Times of transition, change. When things are hard, when things uh, are changing, we lose control of the situation. Just quickly in verse number 11. Because I saw that the people were scattered from me. Now, the beginning of the chapter opens up and says that Saul reigned one year. That reign was characterized by and large by success, victory. They fought one battle, they won one battle. The people that were naysayers against King Saul early on are corrected... And uh, King Saul winning the battle basically proved to everybody that this is the guy. This is our king. So Saul's first year is pretty good. Verse number one tells us this is year two. First year is all right. It's pretty good. Now we're in year two. Saul knows nothing about what it is to watch the people who have supported supported him, watch them basically withdraw their support. Imagine being the leader of a military who started at 2,000 already knowing you're outnumbered and watching guys head for the hills looking for rocks to hide behind. You're watching the support go away. You're watching the change occur. They said I was their king. They said they would fight for me. They said that I could lead them into battle. Now I'm the only one left to stand here and fight. They've all turned their backs on me. This is a time of transition in King Saul's life. And times of transition can cause us to feel like we're losing control. We're all control freaks. Just some of us are willing to admit it. We all are. And there are certain things that make us feel comfortable. I'll tell you some things that make us feel comfortable. When we perceive that we are currently healthy, that makes us feel in control. But it's when we are, uh, when we get a bad report from the doctor... When for whatever reason that we cannot determine our blood pressure or our blood sugar or our our situations get bad. And we sit there and we think, oh my soul, I I don't even know how to fix this. And this time of transition can cause us to lose control. Listen, do not make large decisions in those moments. Don't do it. King Saul's like, seven days, seven days, seven days, and we'll get to that. What are we going to do? Everybody's withdrawing their support. I've got to offer sacrifice. We've got to go fight. What are we going to do? And he's feeling the change happen, and instead of waiting, instead of being patient, what does he do? He acted foolishly. He acted brazenly, and and, and really, too quickly. And uh, he makes a mistake here. Times of transition are hard for even spiritual people. John the Baptist was going through a time of transition when he was in a, a prison, basically about to die. Many Bible theologians think that he could have been there as, many as, a, as long as a whole year. 
And the very same man who stood up on the banks of the Jordan River and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, whose shoes I am not even willing, uh, able to, uh, worthy to unlatch them. I, I can't even touch this guy's footwear. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. The very same guy who in John chapter 1 pronounces that, What does he do? In the book of Matthew, in chapter number 11, he sends from prison two of his disciples to ask whether or not Jesus was the one that they were looking for or whether they should look for someone else. How in the world does John go from John chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 11? It's a time of transition. We're watching Jesus' ministry rise in popularity. We're watching John the Baptist basically lose his ministry as he sits in prison. And you say, how could he act like that? Man, when you go through changes and you lose control of everything heading, uh, uh, going on in your life, here's what happens. You may not be thinking straight all the time. I don't think John the Baptist ever genuinely doubted that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the true Lamb of God. I don't think he ever doubted that. But from John's perspective, now that's an important word, from his perspective, looking at that jail cell, People were rejecting Jesus as Messiah, not embracing Him. People were not treating Him kindly and warmly and affectionately like perhaps John thought they should. He had not been able to see the miracle healing power of Jesus. He had not been able to see that. No wonder Jesus tells the disciples to go back and say, Hey, why don't you go tell Him that uh, the deaf are made uh, able to hear and, and the blind are able to see and the lepers are cleansed. Go tell Him that because these miracles will affirm my work and my mission here and my, and my purpose that I am the Messiah. But John was going through a time of transition and he's struggling with some of these things. And if John the Baptist goes through transitions and gets in, in a, maybe a bad mental state, could you see yourself maybe getting in the same place? But what I see so often is Christians who get in this out-of-control experience, they start making brash decisions that will have long-term ramifications. Big decisions. Well, I just think it's a good time to move back with mom because I just, I don't have the answers here. And you know what that is? That's trying to get control of a situation that you, you really have no control over. We feel comfortable when we have a good health report. We feel good when there's money in the bank account. Those are all false senses of security. All of them. You are not in control. Just relinquish the reins now. Understand that... One phone call, one situation totally changes it. So who is in control? It's either the Lord or no one in your life. The Lord is in control. So you say, Lord, I surrender. It's all in your hands. So I submit to you in this time of transition, I'm not going to make brash decisions that I will eventually regret. Life is filled with transition. You know what the book of Ecclesiastes says? To everything there is a season and a purpose under the sun. And there's all sorts of seasons. There's a time to die, a a time to be born. There's a time to plant and to pluck up that which is planted. There's a time to build and there's a time to tear down. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's all sorts of transition in life. Just be careful when making decisions, big decisions in transition. Because if you are not in a good state to discern the will of the Lord in your life, maybe you would, by making a decision, get outside of His will for you. So we find times of transition can perhaps be an obstacle to making spiritual decisions. Secondly, tightening timelines. Verse 11. 
Saul said, well, I saw that the people were scattered from me. That's the time of transition. He's losing all control. Verse 11, and that thou camest not within the days appointed. I mean, you said seven days, Samuel. You said seven days. Why weren't you here? Seven days. That's what you had said. He was running out of time. Here's the question. How much longer did he need to wait? How much longer should he have waited before he sacrificed? Well, according to this chapter, verse number 10, the Bible says, as soon as he made an end to offering. How long should he have waited? One more second. Just one more moment. Just wait a little bit longer. But for Saul, he... He was feeling this deadline pushing around him, and he felt as if he needed to make a decision. You know, this may surprise you, but God's timeline doesn't always operate according to ours. In fact, God doesn't even abide in time, frankly. God had to enter time as a dimension when He sent Christ to this earth. One day with the Lord is a a thousand years. Time doesn't work the same way in heaven as it does down here. So your seven days really is not a threat to God. Nor was Martha's four days. Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Jesus says, well, he still ain't going to die and I wasn't here. His timeline doesn't operate according to ours. Jarius, uh, he goes to get Jesus because his daughter lies at home sick. He's bringing him through this crowd. And I just imagine the passion of a father who cares for his daughter. And this crowd is so uh, uh, compacted about that they can't even make their way through. And all of a sudden, I can just imagine Jarius, get out of our way, we're going to see my sick daughter. I can just imagine as Jesus turns around to acknowledge a woman who just touched him. And Jarius is like, Jesus, we gotta get, we got to get to my father. we got to get home. My, my daughter, she's sick, she's ill. we got to get home. We don't have time to mess with other people. You don't know the situation. You don't know how bad it is. got to get home. All of a sudden, a servant comes from his house and he says, Why trouble thou the master anymore? Your daughter's dead. Timeline. It's done. We're out of time, Jesus. You, You took your time. You waited too long. I got you. You said you'd come. Jesus doesn't fret at the timelines that we do. The problems that we encounter are no problem for the Lord. No wonder Jesus looked at uh, Jairus and said, Be not afraid, only believe. Faith can move mountains and it can even extend deadlines. Jairus said, Jesus, we got to get there. Jesus wasn't concerned about the timelines. What do we do when we're faced with a decision and we feel the pressures of the timeline closing in around us? Here's just three quick tips. Wait on the Lord, obey His Word, and trust in His deliverance. That's it. Wait on the Lord, obey His Word, and trust in His deliverance. The Bible says in Lamentations, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait. For the salvation of the Lord. The Lord only wants good for you. But you know what He says is good? Wait on me. Wait on me. Times of transition can force us to make unspiritual decisions. Tightening timelines can cause us to make unspiritual decisions. Thirdly, troubling threats can cause us to make unspiritual decisions. Verse number 11. Well, I I saw that the people were scattered from me. There's the time of transition. 
And that thou camest not within the days appointed. There's the tightening timeline. And that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Lord, we're outnumbered. We're outgunned. They're about to sound the horn and attack. And I just had to do something. We all face enemies in this life. We all face the giants of our faith. But can we in those moments, instead of feeling fear because of our enemy, have faith because of our deliverer? That's really the ultimate question. It all boils down to that. The greatest enemies that you face are these. Number one, other men. People will be your adversary. People may oppress you. People may persecute you. And you may have enemies in this life. Now, we are told to handle our enemy situations much differently than, than other people are. We're to love our enemy and we're to pray for our enemy. And we are, we are to extend the love of Christ to them. But nonetheless, it was David who prayed often, Many they be that rise up against me. He faced enemies, and so other men can be your, 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 your enemy. But really, I think more than other men is our enemy, your flesh is your enemy. Your flesh is probably the greatest enemy you face. There, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. Your flesh is not good. It's not looking out for you. It's not trying to help you. It's just a, it's a garbage disposal that is never satisfied and when you feed it, it only gets stronger, it only gets louder, it only grows worse in your life. And I'm thankful that the Lord has given us victory over the flesh because that old man served the flesh like a, like a slave had to listen to his taskmaster. But thanks be to God that gave us the victory through Christ Jesus that we don't have to obey that old man anymore, but he's given us a new man with new appetites and new desires to love him and to serve him. And then your third enemy in this life is your, your adversary, the devil. Now the devil just wants to trip you up. That's all he wants to do. He wants to plant within you seeds of doubt, seeds of fear, seeds of anxiety. I don't necessarily know that he's been particularly assigned to you, but I think he has set up this world that he has been given dominion of right now so, uh, so against your Christian faith that you face Him every single day, whether directly or indirectly. It may be through people, spiritual leaders in high places, uh, wicked leaders in high places. It may be through principalities. It may, it may be through a, th- a, a thousand different things. But the rudiments of this world are against you. So, you have enemies. And these enemies can often cause us to cower in fear. But you know what I found in my short time being saved and certainly my even shorter time and actually trying to live for the Lord, you know, I've learned their bark is much worse than their bite. Like the little chihuahua that yaps at you, God, through His Son, has already given us victory over all three of these things. Other men, we don't need the approval of other men. I will not fear what man can do unto me. I don't need to fear them because my God is greater than them all. Though hand join in hand, the, the wicked shall not go unpunished. The kings of this world will all huddle themselves together at that great day, uh, at the close, at the, the final second coming of the Lord. On that great day, all the kings of the world will set themselves in array against God. And guess what? He will, by the word of His mouth, defeat all of the kings of this world in a moment of time. 
God's not worried about the enemies that you face. He's already defeated them. As far as your flesh goes, He's given you victory through Christ over your flesh. And He's given you the Holy Spirit to daily win that victory in your life. To experience what it is to obey that new man. To feed that new man as opposed to the old man. And as far as the devil goes, the the devil has one great threat against you. You realize that, don't you? Hebrews chapter 2 says that the great, the great threat that the devil has against the human is that he, through the power of death, threatens you. Meaning, he could leverage the fact that at any moment in time, you're human. And he can, in that moment, separate you from etern- for eternity from God. He has the power of death to hold over your head as an enemy saying, all it takes is for you to die and you're forever condemned with me in this place. But through Christ, Jesus dying the death of the cross, He has relieved us from fearing that that threat. You understand that, right? What's the threat of death to a Christian? (laughs) The preacher says it like this in funerals. Uh, would you be sad if your dead uncle here had just won the lottery and got a mansion in the sweepstakes? No. And yet we get to go to heaven and enjoy the splendors of glory and be with our Savior and be with our loved ones that have gone on before. You telling me that the greatest threat the devil can levy against us is that we're going to die? Good luck. Sounds pretty good to me. You see, the enemies that we face are more intimidating than they are uh, legitimate. Because in God, in Christ Jesus, we've already experienced victory through these, over these things. The problem is we sit here and cower in fear because people are against us. We have oppressors. We have enemies. We cower in fear because we just can't overcome the flesh. I can't get rid of that old habit, that old sin that's plagued me for so long. We sit here and fear this supernatural creature who literally has to go to the throne of God to get permission to tempt people. We fear these things and yet greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. But don't, as you're facing these enemies, make decisions that will last forever. The consequences of your decisions are often heavier to deal with than the enemies that cause you to make those decisions in the first place. Think of people that move away from a good church that loves them, that they've become a part of. Move away from this place just to uh, times of transition. And tightening timelines. And even maybe sometimes it's these enemies that we're talking about. They move away only years later to regret ever leaving this place ever leaving the place that cared about them and where God was speaking to them and where God was using them, I watched Christians make decision after decision that they would live to regret. You say, how do I overcome all this? I think very simply it's this. Trust the Lord and obey His Word and wait on His deliverance. It's in these dark times that we describe today that people often close God's Word. You know what the psalmist says this book is? Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Don't close this book 
in your time of transition. Don't close this book when times are getting tight and the deadline's approaching. Don't close this book when the troubling threats surround you. Don't close this book. Trust the Lord, obey His Word, and wait for His deliverance.